As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Evolution and catastrophes are how we got here. They were instrumental in how we got there, and they're very violent. Good God, surely wouldn't do that. Ultimately, what really matters the most is is how this ends. Like, is there some way that somehow the pain, the suffering, could ultimately be part of something greater? Hello, and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that really matter to all of us. Before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Today we are talking about another important topic and we would love to hear your thoughts on this. So do get in touch by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk. But for now, let's jump in on today's discussion. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show where we get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. Today, we are asking some important questions. Do science and religion mix? Is there a conflict between religion and science? And can you be a serious scientist and believe in God or even believe in miracles for that matter? We've got two fascinating guests for you today on Unbelievable, and I think we're going to be in for a treat with a great discussion. On the show, I want to introduce who is going to be here. First, we welcome Phil Helper. Phil is an atheist and a YouTuber who goes by the name Skydive Phil. He's interviewed leading physicists such as Stephen Hawking, Sir Roger Penrose, and Alan Guth for his YouTube series Before the Big Bang. He has been shortlisted as the Insight Astrophotographer of the Year and is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. He's also published several papers in peer-reviewed journals on the problem of animal suffering and has a new film on the subject which features other leading atheists such as Peter Singer and Alex O'Connor. For you regulars here on the show, you will recognize Alex's name. He has actually been on Unbelievable a couple of times recently, talking about Alistair McGrath and Dennis Alexander's new book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Now, opposite Phil, we have Tom Redelius. Tom has just arrived in the UK to take up a position at Durham University as Assistant Professor Mathematical and Theoretical Particle Physics. And he has completed his undergraduate work at Cornell, earned a doctorate in physics at Harvard, and has conducted postdoctoral research at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He then did his postdoc research in theoretical physics at the University of California, Berkeley, and has just taken up his new post in the chilly north of England. 
His research focuses on string theory, quantum field theory, and early universe cosmology. And Tom's newest book tells the story of how he came to faith as a scientist. It's called Chasing Proof, Finding Faith. Came out this past August. I want to welcome you both to Unbelievable. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So let's let's do this. You know, I just gave backgrounds for both of you. And, and Phil, we'll start with you here. I want you to fill in any blanks here on your backstory, things you want people to know that maybe I didn't just hit in your bio as we enter into this conversation today. So I was brought up Jewish and I had to go to Hebrew school um, and I was pretty believing in the religion, certainly up to my bar mitzvah. And I remember studying really hard for my bar mitzvah exam and I, I thought I might you know, that, oh God, if I fail, the whole party's off. It's a very big deal in Judaism. I think in reality, they they pass all the kids, right? But I didn't uh, <laughs> think that was going to happen. So I studied really hard, learned my Torah and my Hebrew. And uh, sometime in my teens, I think I was taught, you know, in a history class that you should look at stories from other people's perspectives. And that was maybe novel to me. And every year we have to do the um, Pesach, the Passover. And... Um, I started to look at the Passover from the Egyptians' perspective, and suddenly I was utterly horrified by what I was reading. You know, the, uh, and the, the massacre of the Egyptians, and uh, also like the hardening of Pharaoh's hearts that didn't seem fair. And but also, uh, what particularly interested me was uh, that all the animals were were killed, like the fish die in the first plague, in the last plague, it's the destruction of the firstborn, but it's also the firstborn cattle. And suddenly it just went, this is terribly wrong. Uh, and so I, I turned against my faith there, I think. But I've always been interested in origin questions. And that probably led me to doing this YouTube series about, you know, what might have happened at the Big Bang. And I was just interested in it, really. So I started interviewing people and, and uh, it just snowballed from there, I guess. What do you think it was that made you have that initial thought of, let me, let me look at things from the Egyptians' perspective? What, what sparked that in you? From, it's hard to remember. It was a long time ago, and memories are not always reliable. But um, if I have to try and remember, I think it was my history teacher that we would have to do, you know, we used to be just learn all the kings. And then a new version of doing history came into our curriculum. And it was much more, you know, try and understand the people's perspectives. And so I, if I had to guess, it was probably that. Okay. And, you know, Tom... As, as we sort of went through your credentials, we obviously talked about your book, Chasing Proof, Finding Faith, and your journey into faith. Before we get there, though, as, as you were hearing Phil talk about that, I saw you were nodding your head a little as you, as you were listening to that. Uh, did any of that resonate with you in, in your journey or even where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for one thing, I just thought, I thought it was really interesting. Um, and yeah, so thanks for sharing, Phil. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, that... that um, and even something I do talk about in my book is kind of what are, what are the things that have bothered me most about faith and and what I believe um, since coming to faith in college or uh, or university, as you would say around here. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that I resonated with that, that definitely some of those things that you read about in the Bible, um, I think are, you know, are very difficult. And I could definitely, I guess, understand kind of that, that being one of the things that if I were if I were to lose my faith, that I think it would probably be for a similar reason. Yeah. So you obviously we're talking about two different things here, right? The loss of faith and then the coming into faith. When it comes to your story, Tom, you know, you were in college, you were introduced to the Christian faith. And this idea of thinking of things differently, 
um, and, and how that you know shapes the way we look at things, which I think, Phil, was very interesting in your story. But Tom, take us through what happened, because you were living your life a certain way. You encounter this, you know, this gospel message. Take us through that journey. Yeah. Um, so um, so I was raised in a in a very loving but also rather non-religious family. Um, so, you know, my, my family had presents on Christmas and chocolate bunnies on Easter. So there was a little bit of that, you know, influence. Um, but as far as the belief system itself, that just never really was something that, that um, played a part in my upbringing. You know, I never went to church. I never read the Bible. Um, most of what I knew about religion came from watching The Simpsons, um, which was actually a fairly good source of information, actually. Um <laughs> For, for someone who had no other religious upbringing. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I was at. And and I guess growing up, I, I kind of always felt like, you know, the, the important thing in life is to, is to enjoy it and to be a good person. And I guess I always kind of felt that, you know, that's that was really the goal of religion too. And I felt like, you know, I was doing those things okay on my own. So why do I really need religion if I, if you know, if I'm already a pretty good person? If I'm already pretty happy, you know, um, and so it wasn't until I got to college my twin brother actually came to faith. We went to we went to different schools. He went to Northwestern University just outside of Chicago. I went to Cornell University uh, in the up, upstate, very cold part of New York, and um, and so it was it was after my brother came to faith and we started talking about it, having conversations that all of a sudden um, a lot of these, uh, you know, I, I started having to think deeper uh, about what I, what it was that I believed and kind of what I had internalized. What, what something I realized is that, you know, before this, I hadn't even appreciated that I had a religion, that I had a worldview of some sort. Um, but the more I, I guess the more I questioned it, uh, the more I thought about it, you know, the more I questioned it, the more I, I re- realized that maybe some of the assumptions that I was making um, weren't right, or, or maybe that there were other um, views that were reasonable too. And so, that's when I started looking deeper into all of these questions of meaning and purpose and the existence of God. And well, to, to make a long story short, here I am today. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But before I come to you, Phil, you know, Tom, was there a moment in that? Because it's obviously a journey. Both of you were on journeys where you can remember things actually just clicked. It was sort of the final straw maybe that convinced you that, no, there's a God. And not only is there a God, but the Christian, the God of the Christian Bible is that God. Yeah. I mean... For me, like there was actually a pretty, pretty um, distinct moment. Um, so after many conversations with my brother, after reading, you know, I, I started, I read the New Testament. Uh, I read some books arguing for Christianity. I read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, Are You Against Christianity uh, and, and Theism in general. And I got to a point where Christianity was, was starting to seem more reasonable, but there was still kind of this disconnect between the intellect and the experience. Um, between what I thought, you know, was reasonable and how I would actually was actually going to live my life, it still just felt like something that wasn't that important to me, um, and definitely not something you know that I wanted to, to just rearrange all of my life, my schedule, my priorities around. Um, so, meanwhile, in a seemingly unrelated note, I um, I applied for some summer internships for the summer after my sophomore year in college. I got a conditional offer from the National Security Agency. And I had to go in and t- to pass a polygraph test to try to get this top secret security clearance. Um, and my feelings towards this polygraph were pretty similar towards my feelings towards faith at the time, which is, you know, I'm, I'm basically a good person. You know, that's what really matters. And this is going to be fine. 
Um, but I went in and I started failing this test and I realized pretty quickly that I was going to fail not only if I were lying, but just if I felt guilty about anything. So for about four hours, I shared everything that I could think of that I'd done wrong in my life. And, um, and for the first time, I, I guess the message that my brother had been telling me about, about um, how people are, are broken, people are sinful, people are in need of forgiveness, that message started to just really click with me. Um, I realized, you know, hey, if I'm not, I'm not as good a person as I like to think I am, and, and probably that means that, that no one else really is either. Um, and so once that, once that clicked for me, I guess the rest of the message that my brother had been telling me about sort of clicked too. And I decided, you know, this, this is something that's, that's worth living my life for. Yeah. And, you know, Phil, so you've, you've been listening to this now and the two of you have, again, very interesting stories, one going one way, the other going the other way. And we are going to get into the ins and the outs of the science and what convinces you of your worldviews. But Phil, what, what do you find most compelling maybe or interesting or what stands out as you listen to that story? Well, I read Tom's book and I, I wouldn't say that I really liked it. I thought it was excellent. It's very engaging. And what was, I think the most interesting for me was reading Tom's struggle between um, his love for the New Testament and his doubts about the Old Testament. Um, and I, I found that very, very fascinating. And it's a really uh, a good read. Um, so, yeah, you could feel the tension in the book. Um, and I guess Tom got past his struggles with the Old Testament and I did not. So I think there's the difference probably. Yeah. Well, and and those struggles obviously are really central to your journey. Um, Tom, how have you, how were you able to do that? How did you navigate that? Because it is a big, even a lot of Christians today, some Christians, they avoid the New Testament, they downplay it, they don't spend as much time in it. Um, what for you sort of helped you through that process? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. So let, let me say, let me kind of clarify too that the this to me isn't something that was like, you know, uh, on my initial journey to faith, like really wrestling with this. And then, you know, I, I figured it all out. And then, you know, for the last 13 years or whatever, that it's just been like, I've been, I felt totally great about this. Um, this is something, you know, this is like a question that I've had my entire journey as a Christian, you know, something that's always bothered me. And, and one thing I do want to clarify, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's so simple as like a distinction of like, the Old Testament bothers me and the New Testament I really love because, you know, there's some things in the Old Testament that I really love. For instance, I've, I've always really loved the book of Ecclesiastes. I've always thought that that was just something that really like resonated with me deeply. Um, I've always found the book of Job extremely fascinating, you know, um, puzzling, confusing, you know, so bothersome in some ways, but also just some, somehow something about it struck me very is very profound. Um, and there are definitely things in the Old Testament, you know, that bother me too. Um, I guess, you know, I, I've been influenced by a lot of um, uh, just of, of Christian thinkers who have kind of wrestled with these questions. I think that's been just in general an important thing for me in my journey is to kind of find the sorts of people who are more knowledgeable than me about certain aspects. Um, you know, I, I like to think I know a little bit about physics, but a lot of these questions, you know, I'm not I'm not the world expert on. It's been important for me to find people who I feel like I trust and who have maybe thought about these issues more. And I guess, you know, where I kind of fall on this is that, you know, there, there are a lot of things about the Old Testament that really bother me uh, in the new, right? There's some things that I just can't imagine. And I think the ones that Phil gave were good examples, you know, um, where, you know, sometimes you see God, say, commanding violence in the Old Testament. 
And it's hard to see how, how, like, how is a loving and good God going to, you know, how, how did that, you know, how, how do you square that? Right. Um, and to be honest, you know, I think there are a lot of questions on that that I still haven't really resolved. Um, but for me, I guess it's kind of a, a question of like, what's really the most important thing to my faith? Um, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I used in my book that I can't exactly remember, but essentially the premise is that, you know, the Bible, the, the Bible isn't kind of the end in and of itself. You know, that the Bible is ultimately a window and a signpost that as Christians, I think, um, we should, we should view it as a signpost that's ultimately pointing us to Jesus. And I think to me, you know, it's really, it's just, I guess, encouraging to see how, when you look at say things in the old Testament where God seems to be very violent at times, and it's hard to see how is that a loving God? Um, but when you see Jesus, right, and he and his disciples want to go and start a war in his honor, he says, uh, you know, he, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. You know, that Jesus Jesus chooses instead to l- allow the violence to be done to him rather than doing that violence. So I think at the end, you know, there is obviously still that mystery, that paradox, that puzzle that I'm still not exactly sure what to do with. But ultimately, I guess my point is that my faith is really in in Jesus and that's where I look to kind of as the clearest example of who God is. Um, and the rest of it, you know, I feel like I can, I can be okay still having that tension and still struggling, still hopefully learning as I get older. And maybe someday I'll come to a better, you know, viewpoint on, on how to make sense of all of that. And go ahead, Phil, jump in there. Very quick question, Tom. Um, have you ever considered um, a version of Christianity like Gnosticism, where what, they, what the Gnostics believed was that the Old Testament God was actually an evil demiurge called Yaudabaoth, and um, so that would explain. Very, they believed they believed there was a spiritual realm called the realm of Barbalo, and the original God didn't didn't want there to be a physical or not our physical universe at least, and it was a, this evil demiurge called Yaudabaoth that created the earth to trap souls in physical bodies where you know they can suffer, and and so. They believe Jesus had come to take us back to the realm of Barbalo. And um, that would that not be an option uh, for someone like yourself? Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I could I could see, you know, someone um, finding that as a compelling option. And, and you know, I, I do know a little bit about Gnosticism. I'm not the world expert, so maybe I should look more into it. But I mean, I guess what I would say is it seems to me, though, that somehow, somehow Jesus, you know, Jesus was whatever else he might have been. He was definitely a Jew. And, um, and so Jesus somehow, you know, I think Jesus somehow viewed the Old Testament and the God that he saw there as not being in contradiction with his own teaching. Um, and that, you know, as I think you bring up, you know, you, you bring up this good point that sometimes it sort of feels like it is, um, but I, I don't think Jesus saw it that way. And so I think it's maybe a bit of a challenge to me is to try to see you know, how, how do I make sense? How do I square both the, 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 you know, the judgment of God with also his mercy? Um, and I do think, you know, I do think, I mean, this is kind of the cliche, right? But, uh, you know, we, I think we do definitely see God's justice and judgment in the New Testament, in particular, falling on Jesus himself. We do see God's mercy um, in the Old Testament in many places. And so, you know, I think it's harder for me to say, you know, to, to say it's so simple as like the God of the Old Testament is evil. And then the, Jesus and the God of the New Testament is totally different and is good. But it does seem like there's maybe a different focus uh you know, in different books of the of the Bible, on which whether we're focusing more on you know the the like the justice versus the mercy, um, yeah. But that's uh, a good question. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's interesting, and and you know, you're really talking about faith here, right? Because at some point, you mentioned the word mystery. There, there's some elements that 
you know, Tom, not speaking for you, but what, what I hear you saying is there, there's a faith element here where you have to lift that up and say, I don't know. But for you, Phil, it, you're not able to, t- you're not willing or able to say, hey, I'm going to just take that at face value on the faith of it. It was for you, it led you away from it, the, these things, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess you just have to imagine two narratives, right? One is that the Bible is, what's the phrase in the New Testament? God breathes, I think is the phrase. God breathes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so you can use, that's one hypothesis, right? And another hypothesis is that this is just written by people of the time and, and, and they had the views of the time. And that one, you know, comparing those two hypotheses, it just seemed that that one fit better. You know, why, why are there so much cruelty to animals in the Bible? Well, because it, from a, a society that didn't value you know, animals very highly, you know. So, um, you know, why, why, why did they get all the creation stuff wrong? Well, because they didn't know, you know. Um, it just seemed to fit better for me. That, that was my, my view. Okay, and I, wa- I want to talk about absolute proof. And we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes here, but I want to get into this because, you know, different people have different views on how absolute the proof can be for or against faith. And so, Phil, I'll, I'll start with you. You know, as an atheist, as somebody who doesn't believe, how absolute is that non-belief for you? Well, I, I think we should reject uh, absolutes <laughs> and maybe even the word proof for these sorts of discussions. We should embrace uncertainty, I feel. Uh, and I think that's something that Tom mentions in, in his book as well. So I think we agree on that. We, for these sorts of questions, you know, absolutes may be, um, should, shouldn't be words we should be using. Of course, it depends how you define the word proof, right? Because mathematicians have this definition of proof, you know, sort of axiomatic, da, 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 da. You know, whereas, you know, in, in normal language, you might say proof is just overwhelming evidence, right? So in that sense, I mean, I actually do think, you know, from the overwhelming evidence, I, I think the evidence is overwhelming that the, the God of the Bible, you know, is is made up by humans. Um, now, of course, when you say God, because uh, people can mean different things by God, right? So, so of course, it depends on your definition of God. Um, so so I'm, I'm pretty confident that the Bible is... You know, not the work of an all-powerful, all-good all God. I, I'm, I, I'm pretty confident on that. But I don't like the use of words absolutes and, and truths. I think they're inappropriate. Yeah, I think the word evidence is a, is a great word. You use that there, right? Yeah, you stack yeah. up the evidence and you make yeah. a decision, right? And, and that's what people have to do. And for you, you made it very clear where that evidence leads you. Now, Tom, the evidence for you mm-hmm. obviously leads leads you somewhere different, right? And that's speak to that a little bit on on your side. And we're going to get in the next segment into more of the nitty gritty of what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, well, let me say, I, I, yeah, I completely agree with this whole idea that I, I, I just don't like the word proof because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that in general, you know, I, I, even in science, right? Like scientific experiment have experiments have error bars. Um, sci- science has uncertainty. Some fields of science have a lot more uncertainty than others. Uh, and I think that philosophy, theology, um, metaphysics is in general also a field that has generally quite a bit of uncertainty. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think that that ultimately it comes down to kind of weighing the arguments for and against. And and I want to say that, you know, I do think that, um, you know, when I talk about these challenges, these things that bother me in the Old Testament, um, like I do think that that moves the needle towards atheism for me, you know. Um, but for me, I think it just doesn't, it doesn't move it far enough. Like to me, I think that there's enough other things um, that enough other arguments for the existence of God and, and enough other arguments against naturalism that to me, the, the things that bother me in the Bible kind of aren't enough to move the needle all the way to the other side. Is, 
Is there one thing for you, Tom, and I think I know what you'll say, Phil, but but I'm still going to ask you after this, but is there one thing for you, Tom, that that you could say this is the most compelling thing that leads me toward the belief in the God of the Bible? I mean, I think it's really, uh, I mean, I don't like separating the different arguments because I think they kind of all fit together. But I think that kind of there's, uh, I guess I'll say I start with the contingency argument and then the evidence from fine tuning and then the evidence for the life, death, miracles, and resurrection of Jesus. I think to me, those present a compelling story of what this world about is all about, and they've fit together nicely. Okay. And we'll unpack, we'll unpack all that in the next segment. Phil, for you, what is the most compelling piece of evidence that makes you say, there's no way that the God of the Bible is true? Well, uh, we've just published a paper um, called, in the International Journal of Philosophy of Religion, say we as my colleagues and I, um, and uh, Ken Willeford, he's a, a professor of philosophy, and David Rudrup is a neuroscientist, and um, Perry Fuchs is a pain specialist. I, I, and we outline this argument against the biblical goal, which we call the expanded problem of animal suffering. So it has sort of five components. And it, but one of the first one is called the problem of time. So it's the fact that hundreds of millions of years of animal suffering have, have existed before humans existed. And that's a very serious problem for the biblical God, because generally Christians have explained suffering via the fall. But if animals have been suffering for hundreds of millions of years before the fall, that's a very big problem for pushing animals. The second one is we call the problem of creation, which is that um, evolution and catastrophes are how we got here. They were instrumental in how we got there, and they're very violent. A good God surely wouldn't do that. Then we have what we call the problem of divine commands, which are the commands to, let's say, slaughter the Amalekites, for example. And they actually specifically say, kill all the animals. Um, then we have the problem of divine actions, so the flood. Uh, the great place, but even in the in the New Testament, we have Jesus exercising a demon into two thousand pigs that then go down a cliff and all drown. So this is a problem, you know. If you want to say this is a perfectly good God, and then the last one is we currently face uh, what's called the Anthropocene extinction. So this is a view among scientists today, uh, maybe not all, but I think it's you know it's becoming increasingly popular that we are entering a mass extinction event, partly driven by human consumption of meat. And God could have just easily either made us herbivores or uh, maybe given us commandments to either not eat meat or at least reduce our meat intake. Um, and the fact that he did the opposite, it, again, it doesn't look uh, consistent with an all-powerful, all-loving God. He would know that this giant mass extinction event was coming. He could have easily avoided it, uh, but yeah, he didn't. So though, though this, is, this is what we call the expanded problem of animal suffering. And, and this is, convinces me that the biblical God is, is false. Well, we are going to dive more into that on the other side of the break here. We're going to take a break, and we want you to remember, if you're listening or watching, that we always love to hear from you as listeners. So don't forget, you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. You can also get in touch on social media at unbelievablefe over on X, formerly known as Twitter, or over on facebook.com slash premierunbelievable if you want to interact with us over there. We still have plenty to talk about. You're listening to premieres unbelievable with me billy hollowell and my guests today are tom Redelius and phil helper we'll be back in just a moment before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast i've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this easter as you know nt wright is without doubt one of the greatest christian thinkers and apologists of our time and some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. 
That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of this discussion. We're going to be talking about a number of topics, among them whether animals have souls. That'll be one of the interesting things we get into with me today is Tom Radelius, and he is the assistant professor of mathematical and theoretical particle physics at Durham University and author of Chasing Proof, Finding Faith. We also have Phil Helper, an atheist YouTuber um, who has debated and discussed these issues quite a bit over the years. We are talking about whether or not there is an inherent conflict between God and science or religion and science. And I want to I want to actually go there now, because a lot of what we're talking about, we, we talked about your journeys that sort of brought us into this conversation, how you ended up where you are, very different trajectories. You know, Tom, as somebody who you know, found faith in college, you're you're studying to become a scientist. You now are a scientist. What do you say to those who argue, no, there is an inherent conflict between religion and science. There is no way to make these two things fit together. Yeah. Um, I guess what I would say, yeah, as, I th- as you say, I think there are a lot of people who kind of view um, religion and science as sort of two just c- completely diametrically opposed and even incompatible approaches to the same sorts of questions. Um, what I would say, what, what I've found kind of actually walking the journey of science, walking the journey of faith, I would say that for me, actually, my approach to science and my approach to faith are actually very similar. Um, that both of them are, um, you know, deal with trying to minimize and quantify and navigate uncertainty um, in, in a world that is inherently full of it. Um, and so to me, I would say that faith and science are are generally similar approaches to very different questions. Whereas I think I think that science does a very good job with questions about mechanisms and how things work and how things have come to be. And I think that um, religion and faith, theology, philosophy uh, is, does a better job with questions about meaning and purpose. Um, and so I think for me that that's kind of the maybe this is also partially an answer to, you know, how to read the Bible. How do I read the Bible is I think ultimately um, what the what this is largely telling us about more is our meaning and purpose and about, less about mechanisms, how exactly things work. I think that that's where I turn to science. Um, but ultimately, as I say, I think they're very similar approaches, just different questions. Mm. Phil, those terms meaning and purpose, you know, for you, how do you deal with those? I mean, this is a common question, right? And people of faith will say, we have the answers here. Uh, people who do not have faith, atheists, agnostics, others, they have different ways of answering it. So what would you say? So, I mean, I, it's, it's going to be an answer you've heard before. I don't think I'm going to say anything original, but I think we find our own meaning and purpose in life. So there is meaning and purpose, but it's what we give ourselves. Um, I don't see any reason to think that there's a meaning and purpose coming from a God, and certainly not the biblical God, even if 
there is a God. Um, so, but what I think I do want to disagree some, somewhat with what Tom said, because I think um, he said, okay, science deals with mechanisms and religion focuses on, on the meaning questions. But of course, both I think science and religion are interested in our origins. And maybe this is why I'm interested in both science and religion, because they're both stories about our origins. And this is where I think the conflict arises. I don't think it's a inevitable conflict. What was your phrase, inherent conflict? I, I would say it's more of a probabilistic conflict. And that is, the more um, religious you are, probably the more likely you are to sort of oppose science. So it's not a, um, a coincidence that um, thir- there was a survey, 38% of evangelicals believe in evolution and 95% of atheists do. That, that's not a coincidence. Now, of course, 38% is still not zero, right? So it's not an inevitable conflict, right? You could still turn and square the values of science with your religious text. And obviously, depending on how you view your religious text will depend on whether there's a conflict or not. But certainly the fact that those tests exist uh, um, and the fact that we have passages like saying, well, all, all scripture is God-breathed means that it's at least likely that there's going to be a conflict. Uh, and in fact, what was interesting reading Tom's book, tell me if I've got this wrong, Tom, because I'm going off my memory. Uh, but I only read it a few days ago. Um, and that is the very first issue that your brother encountered on his, on his journey to faith was evolution. And someone said, I don't believe in evolution because it opposes my belief in, in Jesus. Uh, did I, do I remember that correctly? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying I think there is um, a kind of a conflict, but it's not the sort of conflict that says you can't be a scientist and be a Christian. Of course not. That would be utterly absurd. And Tom is excellent evidence of that. Um, but it's that, you know, depending on how you interpret these texts, and it's not unreasonable to, to I think, to interpret them literally, right? That's not a, an absurd thing to do. Um, th- then you will come in, into, into conflict. Yeah, I want to I wanna go back a little bit to the meaning and purpose piece of that conversation again, because th- this is such a, it's such a central piece for the two sides to, to discuss and debate over. And Tom, when you hear that idea of, you know, we we get to kind of make that meaning, right? We decide, and that's a very common ideology today. What? How do you respond to that as a scientist who is a Christian? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I would agree that if, um, you know, if there is no God, that ultimately there is no meaning and purpose. Um, but I guess I'm not sure that, or, or that, you know, that we, have, that we have to create your own. I, I guess what surprises me is that so many atheists feel content with that. Um, like, I, I guess to me, it seems that a world where purpose is nothing but what I impose on it, um, you know, that morality is nothing but what, say, society decides, um, that, that ultimately these things are, you know, are just kind of inventions that we impose on ourselves and uh, enforce others to, to live by. Um, to me, that seems like a... Um, like just a, a world that's very difficult to actually live in. I mean, I guess to me that that seems indistinguishable from kind of just like wishful thinking of I wish you know I wish there were some meaning, so I'm going to to live as if there were. So maybe, maybe Phil can explain a little bit more like why that why that doesn't bother him. Well, I think we should distinguish between morality and meaning. They're not necessarily the same things. Um, so interestingly, there was a survey uh, of philosophers. And um, it's called the Phil Paper Survey. It's one of the largest academic surveys I've ever seen. I think it's had 1,700 philosophers that interviewed. And the majority, I think it was something like 70%, said they accept or lean towards atheism. 
But um, I also think, if I remember right, it was something like 60% said they, they favor moral realism. So moral realism is the view that there are moral facts, but they're not just social constructs. So um, clearly people can have different views about morality. Um, so I, I don't think we necessarily make up our morality so in the same way that we might make up our um, meaning. Um, I think morality is a bit more like something we might discover. Like, like imagine you're playing a game. You might discover better strategies than other strategies, right? So if you play chess, I believe you have to sort of try and take control of the center of the board. Uh, if you play Monopoly, I, I, I like Monopoly better. Uh, you definitely want to buy properties, <laughs> right? Um, you know, you, you could just, you could have a strategy of chess of just make random moves, right? Probably that will not, you could, but you could show, I think, quite clearly, even though there might not be an objective best strategy for chess, um, it's not the case that any strategy is as good as any other. So I think morality or actually sort of, it's like, it's sort of like a game theory approach is the way I think about it. You, you're discovering better ways to live, better moral codes. And, and clearly, I think that is how society um, has shaped. Like, like if you look at the moral codes in the Bible, they don't look very moral. Like, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, it says, you know, someone takes you away from your religion. If a town takes you away from, their, from your religion, you should you know, investigate very carefully, see if they've blasphemed and da-da-da-da-da. But if they have, then you kill them all and their animals. And I think, you know, we've learned that this is, you know, not okay. So, so we do see this sort of moral learning, and we also see sort of proto-morality in animals. So, you know, the very famous experiments with the, um, uh, with the monkeys where, you know, if they're treated unjustly, you know, they, they react quite angrily. So, so it does seem like it's this sort of, it's, it's not this thing that's handed down from us, from God, but rather there's sort of principles that we can discover that, that you know, would lead to um, things that we would think is a better outcome for society. So I, I, have a, I have a question, a follow-up question, actually, to that. So you mentioned, you know, you say we look at the Bible, you know, we see, you, we see all of these codes that don't, you know, these moral codes that don't seem very moral. So my question is, you know, if we had someone from those that, those societies, you know, like even if, let, let's suppose that atheism is true, right? Let's suppose that those, that these codes are just written by humans. There's no, you know, God. God has nothing to do with these, right? That this is just a different society, different moral codes. Now, if we were to tell them, you know, this is what we think are correct morals. Um, they would probably say, oh, no, you know, wow, society's really gone backwards, you know, like, uh, wow, look at look at what the more the, what the quote unquote moral codes that people are coming up with thousands of years later. Is that these are clearly headed in the wrong direction. I guess my question is, who who is the judge for which, you know, there have been so many different societies, so many different moral codes. Who's, who's the judge for which of these moral codes is correct? Well, I think. You know, inevitably, you, you have to make judgments. We are the judge, and there's no escape from that. You can't escape your own judgment. So, if you believe in God, for example, you have to make a judgment: is does God exist? Is he moral? There's no escaping your own judgment. So, yes, I, I if I had a discussion with them, now I, we don't need to imagine visiting people from the past. There are people today that have the you know very different views about morality, right? So there are conservatives and liberals. Uh, 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 and we don't agree about what's moral. So um, I think there's just no way to escape your own judgment. Um, and, and in fact, the argument that morality is objective, right? So, so you know, if I asked you, Tom, how do you know that morality is objective? Um, how, how, how do I know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. What do you mean by no? I mean, I... Okay, what leads you to that conclusion that morality is objective? 
I think basically the thing I what I just said is that I think di different societies have different um, have different views. And as a scientist, I can't see what experiment I would do to determine who is right. I, I can't see how. Right, right. But wouldn't that make it subjective then? I mean, if, if there's a, in science, we think there might be a factor of the matter, right? So there's a controversy right now about, you know, what's the value of the Hubble constant, which is, you know, how, how fast the universe is bad. And, and there's a debate, you know, is it 68 or 72 or whatever it is? Yes, yes. Right? Presumably, we think there is an objective factor of the matter and science could discover that fact, right? But if you're saying for morality, you couldn't imagine an experiment that could decide that fact. That would surely speak against the fact that there's a, a moral fact to be discovered. Well, I, I think that there's two di to a distinction here to be made between what can we, you know, what what can we know, how, you know, uh, versus does truth even exist in the first place? Um, you know, the question I think if if there is some sort of judge, you could call that God, you could call that something else, then there then that that truth does exist even if I may not be aware of it, right? Even if I may not have perfect knowledge of it. And as a result, I do have to make judgments, as you say. Right, right, right. That's different, though, for, from saying that there is no judge whatsoever. In that case, I, I don't see, you know, what, what, is, what, is, what is the thing that determines which is right? Like, what is the, what is the thing that determines whether my, our society is correct or whether those ancient societies are correct? And my question is, why is believing in such a thing any more reasonable than believing in God. Right. So um, just to come back to this point about mor morality, like I, so it seems like we're both agreeing that there has to be a judge, right? Obviously, morality is something that we judge. And I see, yeah, I see that there has to be a judge or otherwise it's essentially, I mean, yeah, it's just entirely subjective and not, and not useful. Right. So, but I think we need to be careful not to uh, imagine a full psychotomy between entirely subjective and entirely objective. There can be uh, things that have properties of both. So, for example, imagine the um, exchange rate between the pound and the dollar, right? So, yeah. I think it's, I don't know what it is right now, but maybe one twenty-three, right? So, is that objective or is it subjective? It's not totally subjective. It's not like I can just say no, no. I think it's a uh, hundred to one. You know, obviously, we would be saying something absurd there, but it's not entirely objective either, right? Because it is determined by in the minds of currency traders and you know things like that. So, so it actually seems to have properties of both. So I would reject the notion that we have to sort of um, accept that morality has to be either perfectly subjective or perfectly objective. Um, what I think we do when we when we determine rules of morality is we use our judgment. We we basically use our sort of moral instincts and our moral intuitions and and our reason. So if someone was to come to me and say, um, "Look, I think it's okay to to kill uh, all, all the animals in that." in that uh, town because they were all non-believers you know i might try and reason with them and say well maybe you know um there isn't a god that's commanded you to that to do maybe i could show you the evidence that animals actually suffer because maybe they didn't believe that and indeed many christian philosophers such as augustine such as thomas aquinas even contemporary uh philosophers such as william lane craig have suggested that animals either don't suffer or are not aware of their suffering um and I could try and show them, I mean, what we do in our paper is to try and show them the evidence that that's false. But that's all I can do, right? I can only argue for what I can argue for. And I think the problem is that if you want to say that morality is objective, then then I think you're led to a, a, a conflict with Christianity. Because this is why I ask, well, how do you know that morality is objective? Because usually the answer I get is, well, look, it's just obvious that certain things are immoral. It's just obvious, right? So... 
Uh, and I don't know if that's your view, Tom, but that, that is what a lot of people say. So if that is your view, then um, to me, it's just obvious that the things in the Bible are wrong, right? So either I can trust my moral intuitions <laughs> or I can't. If I can trust them, then I'm going to say the Bible's wrong. If I can't, then it's hard to know how I can establish morality is objective. My position is that in general, moral truth can be tough to, to, to know what, it, what exactly is right or wrong. Um, my, my question so far isn't, isn't about the knowledge of what's right and wrong. It's about whether or not such a thing exists. I mean, you, you brought up this question of, well, we just, you know, we use our reason, we use this, we use that. And I guess the question I'm left with is, who is we there? Um, because clearly our society, you know, versus different societies, they use their their reason, they use their rationality, they arrive at one conclusion. We use ours, we use our reason, we use our rationality, we, use, we arrive at a different conclusion. And I think that the the analogy that you gave about the currency is a little bit of a, of a, um, false analogy, because I think, you know, as a society, yes, we do, just as how we impose, you know, we have exchange rates that are determined, and that's how we run our society. We also have moral law, we also have, you know, laws, legislation that says, you know, if you do this, then this is wrong, you know, um, that, that yes, we have these rules that we live our society by and that our society functions by. But the, the challenge to me, and the, the issue I run into is how do we compare our society versus a different one. So it's not just a practical question of how do we run a society by what we consider societally to be a moral system. The question is, how do we even determine which moral system is the right one? And it's, I, I mean, it's not the practical question of how do we do that, you know, using reason or whatever. But what I'm trying to really say, the rhetorical question is, is that there isn't a way to do it, which means that I, I think that it doesn't really make sense to say that there is a, an objective morality if there's no objective way to determine between our system in this culture versus a different society in a different culture. Right. So I, I, well, okay. So I kind of agree with you. There isn't, I as I say, I don't think morality is, is either fully objective or fully subjective. It has, it's, it's a complicated beast. And of course, philosophers create these categories, you know, moral realism, moral anti-realism. And, and we want to slide everything into these neat boxes, but I don't think, I think morality is this complicated beast that doesn't fit into these neat, neat boxes. Um, so I think, you know, we've just, I don't think any there's anything gained by believing in God. Like, if if God is true, well, okay, he might there might be a God, but I don't see why that would suddenly change the moral facts. Like, if there are any, you know, just because he says it, does that make it true? You know, you know the old Euthyphro dilemma. Um, yeah, I I just don't see how God helps us in these difficult questions. Now, of course, I should point out that. Um, you know, moral philosophy is a very interesting topic, and moral philosophers disagree about this. So um, there is a majority for moral realism, but there's all kinds of different uh, schemes that you could have: utilitarianism, deontology, da 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 da. So, so this is a very in interesting discussion, and I, I, and you're hearing my views at the moment. It doesn't necessarily reflect the views of, of all the other moral philosophers that that have this. So this is a very difficult question, but I just don't see how God helps the the very interesting discussion that's had on this. Well, I mean, I think that the way that God answers my question in particular of how do we judge, you know, our society versus another society is that, is that there is there is a judge that that there is one who who decrees. And I mean, honestly, I would rather take one side of the Euthyphro dilemma and say that, you know, it's only good because God says it. I think that's still a big improvement over what atheism can offer. And I think something that bothers me, you know, something as a, you know, as a scientist, I'm happy to say, you know, well. Moral views, you know, there's nothing 
these are just kind of um, you know illusions that have been programmed to in, into us by evolution. This is a group survival mechanism. Like if, if I were an atheist, I think that's the route I would go. What, what's remarkable to me is that so many atheists kind of are have that option of saying that this is you know this is an illusion that ultimately it's really just the laws of nature. Um, but that so many atheists instead choose to say actually moral values do exist. That there's also these things called more you know aside from just the laws of nature. There's also these moral laws, which just happen to fit so perfectly with the world that we observe. You know that that and not only with the world of not only do these laws fit so perfectly, right? So that say human pain is good, or sorry, human pain is bad and pleasure is good. Animal pain is bad, animal pleasure is good, right? That these these moral values that just exist somehow fit so perfectly with our world, but they actually happen to fit so perfectly with my modern Western moral views. That that to me is just a huge coincidence. And that's the sort of thing that I, I guess I, I'm confused why an atheist would even want to go down that route. It's not the route I would go if I were an atheist. It's not a coincidence. Like you, you know from internal introspection that pain is bad, right? You can you can know that, right? So it's not a, a coincidence. And now, if if we're playing a game and we we learn better strategies, then I wouldn't be surprised that people in the past had better, worse strategies. That wouldn't be surprising to me. That's not a coincidence at all, because as we uh, continue playing the game as it were we learn better strategies so I, I don't find it surprising at all what I would find surprising is you know that if you think um, morality is objective that the morality in the bible and it comes from God that the morality in the bible is so conflicts with your moral intuitions I mean how can you explain that if the bible God is the resource of your moral intuitions how can it be that you can read a passage like the slaughter of the Amalekites where it says kill every human being, every woman, every child, and every animal, and say, yep, that is from the source of objective morality. I, I, to me, that is the much bigger challenge than how is it that you can learn uh, moral improvement through, through progress and time. Tom, I want to give you a chance to respond to that in one second here, but I, I want to say we're talking about baselines here, and you guys have made this very easy. It's, I'm, I'm watching this. It's very, very interesting to hear you go back and forth on this. You know, the baseline, what you're talking about, Phil, is, hey, the Bible as a baseline and God as a baseline, based on what you just described, it's not a good baseline of morality. And on the other side, you know, Tom, I would imagine what you're saying is, well, the self is not a good baseline of morality. And so you have these you have these two dueling ideas. Um, and I just want to highlight that for people, because I think that is that is the, I think, linchpin of this entire debate. Uh, but Tom, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the self is a, a terrible um source for intuition, I mean, uh, uh, for morality. I mean, I think, I believe as a Christian that um, that God has given us all this moral intuition and that that, um, you, you see that and there's, and that that is, is generally reliable. Um, and I mean, I, I think to me that the question that it's bothering me is something more fundamental, which is, um, you know, Phil talks about how, oh, you know, well, you know, it's, it, we're making improvements in morality that we compare to people in the past, you know, we're, we're getting better at playing the game. I, I guess my issue is that I, I would say it seems like the people in the past are just playing a different game entirely. Like the rules of the game are not well defined is my issue. Um, because the people back then are making certain rules and we now are making certain rules. And of course we feel like our rules are better than their rules. Um, but they would say the exact same thing to us. And so I, my 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 problem is a deeper one. Is that I, I I'm not sure if the um, 
I, I'm not sure what is the the meta ethical foundation for for the idea that there is a game at all. I mean, to I guess to me the 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 viewpoint the the, the problem with atheism and, and morals that morals there is that it feels like the game is just Calvin Ball. I don't know if you ever there's this Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic book where Calvin and, and Hobbes play this game called Calvin Ball, which is they just make up the rules as they go along and you know kind of whatever whatever suits them in the moment that those are the rules uh th- that to me is the issue and so that that's what i'm still not i'm still not understanding where the, how the, how those are coming uh where those rules are coming from well you yeah but i mean as i say we I have think... about one minute here phil we have about one minute but whatever we don't get to we'll get on the other side of the break okay we might want to talk about some of the topics <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> we, we will we will that's fine but that's okay I, i'm happy to talk about this topic but, um uh, the, the things always go in a surprising direction, right? Um, so, um, but I, I think the foundation is that you know that pain is wrong, right? So that's that's something that you know from introspection. You don't have to have a, a booming voice from, voice from the sky tell you that. You know that from introspection. So, um, so that can be a foundation. Of course, we we you do make up the game as you go along, rules of the game as you go along. But if you play a game and the rules of the game um, make it a boring game. <laughs> then you're probably going to switch to a better game, right? So you could have a rule in chess where, you know, the, the pieces just do anything you like, right? You could have you could try that, right? But I think you'd find nobody would want to play that game. So there's nothing wrong with making up the rules of the game as you go along. I think that's fine. What you'll do as you play, you'll find that the game will be better when you, you'll, you'll come up with better rules. But, that, but I don't think that you didn't answer the question, Tom, about how is it that if God is our source of our moral intuitions... Then, uh, then so many things in the Bible conflict with our moral intuitions. That, that I'd really like an answer to that one. Well, we're going to pause there, and we're going to come right back on the other side, and we can we can start there, and then we're going to get into a couple of more specific issues and arguments from both of you um, on all of these topics. Uh, remember, we always want to hear from you, listeners, so you can send us an email. It's unbelievable at premier.org. UK. You can also get in touch with us on social media. It's at Unbelievable FE over on X or on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Premier Unbelievable. You can interact with us over there on Facebook. We still have a lot to talk about on the other side. You're listening to Premier's Unbelievable, and we will be right back. Welcome back to part three of this discussion. We are going to be getting a little more specific now on some of the arguments that both of our guests have. I have here with me Tom Rodilius, Assistant Professor of Mathematical and Theoretical Particle Physics at Durham University. And I also have Phil Helper, an atheist YouTuber who has really done a lot of these debates on this issue. Lots to unpack here. Uh, you know, I, I want to make sure that we can kind of close up the conversation we were just having. So Tom, I'm going to just toss it back to you, let you kind of pick it up there, and then we're going to move into some other topics. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, well, I guess on, on the specific, specific question that Phil asked about, um, you know, about the the God of the Bible, I mean, I think I think it's kind of, a, it, it's definitely a difficult question of, you know, what, what do we think about that moral, the morals that we sometimes see of God in the Old Testament? And I mean, I think there's kind of two different routes that you can go as a Christian. Um, one is to say that, you know, on the one hand, the Bible is God, you know, Phil brought up this dichotomy before of, you know, is the Bible um, God breathed or is it just written by men? Um, and, and definitely, you know, the Christian answer is both, right? That in a sense, it's God breathed and in a sense, it's written by men. And um, and how exactly do those two go together, I think, isn't, it isn't, always, it isn't exactly obvious. Um, 
So, so one one route that you could go is say, well, you know, maybe the God, the Bible is God breathed that the, the God is speaking to us in some way through it. Uh, but maybe it's not quite so simple as saying, you know, that like this is exactly uh, what God wants us to do. You know, oh, God tells them to, God instructs the Israelites to to destroy all, all the uh, the Canaanites or whatever. You know, therefore, uh, you know, therefore that we should be doing that as well. Um, that I think that there is kind of this understanding of like, well, this this was written by fallible men. Um, so, you know, m- maybe it's more complicated than that. I think also, you know, there's this kind of the, the classic, I mean, maybe more classic apologetic answer, which is to really talk about, you know, there's the, there's this paradox of judgment and mercy that, um, that, you know, I think most of us, you know, e- even those of us who really have a problem with this, we often do still have this feeling, this innate sense that that judgment is a good thing, you know, that somehow people should be punished for their crimes. Um, and I mean, the problem is this with this, of course, is that all of us have committed some crimes. All of us have done some things that are wrong. Um, and so there is kind of this tension. I mean, yeah, I think that a lot of in general, you know, we, we often look, um, say, at some of the Christian views on judgment and have problems with them. Um, but yet I, I also feel that society as a whole hasn't completely figured out what exactly would we prefer that's better. Um, there's a there's this great quote, quote from Miroslav Volf, the philosopher, about how um, it takes it takes the quiet of a Western suburb to get rid of, uh, to have a problem with the idea of God as a God of judgment. Um, because in our world, in our com- relatively comfortable lives, we don't see such great evil. And so we also don't expect great judgment. Um, but perhaps people in different cultures, different societies wouldn't feel the same way. At the very least, I would say this, you know, even if the Bible was written by, just written by men, you know, nothing special about it, just a book. Um, somehow those people found that such problems were not terrible moral dilemmas, right? That they understood that this idea that, that judgment is something that is, uh, is sometimes necessary. And so I think it's, it's interesting to say, you know, we, we in our moral, from our moral system can say that this is atrocious and pe- many other people throughout history would have said this is just normal. I think it's important for us to maybe understand why those people felt that way, um, lest we kind of fall into the same problem of doing immoral things just because we think that our current moral system is the best one. Final, final comments on that, Phil. Is there anything you want to add to that before we uh, transition? Yeah, I mean, well, judgment is necessary, but what we see in the Bible doesn't look like a fair judgment. And at some point, we have to be able to say it's not just to kill all the animals of a town because they've taken you against the Lord, right? Um, There has to be a point where you say, this just doesn't look just. And I don't know what more you could want than the command of genocide. Like It's like the worst thing that I can imagine is the command of genocide, right? And not just killing all the humans, but killing all the animals. So there has to be a point where your judgment is, this doesn't look right. It doesn't pass the smell test, really. And at some point, we all we can't escape our own judgment. uh, And that's my judgment. And maybe Tom has a different one. Yeah, that's where we are. Well, and that that judgment, though, particularly the animals, that's something that we go back to the beginning of the show here. You were sharing your story. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting, this argument that you make and you've written, you know, extensively on this about animal suffering as a deterrent or an argument against the almighty. Let's unpack that a little bit. 
Um, you know, how did you, we know how you came to that, but, but why do you think that is a very compelling argument against God? Well, because some of the explanations that are offered for the standard sort of problem of suffering or problem of evil, whatever you would call it, um, they don't seem to work for animals. So this, I think the standard explanation for Christianity um, is that suffering came into the world through, through humans. It's been a scientific discovery that the history, natural history of, of our planet is that there's been hundreds of millions of years of animal suffering before humans. So that spells trouble for Christianity. Also, um, as I said before, traditionally in Christian philosophy, Augustine towards Aquinas said that animals don't suffer. Descartes had said the same thing. You know, and I think you know science is now pretty pretty confident that they do. So this, you know, this is this spells trouble for Christianity um, because if if you think about let's say the story of Legion, right? The story of Legion is that Jesus encounters a demon uh, or demons and he expels them into 2,000 pigs that then run down a cliff and they all drown. Now, as I understand it, uh, Augustine said, look, he's teaching us a lesson here that the lives of the pigs don't really matter. Uh, if we discover that actually they do matter, then Christianity has a very, very big problem. So, so Tom, you know, I'm seeing you react to this a little bit and do you think that this, from your perspective, is evidence that Christianity does have a problem on this? I mean, I would say that that um, the problem of evil and suffering is definitely, you know, a challenge um, to think about. I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't personally find that the addition of animal suffering um, is a huge uh, addition to the problem. I mean, I think that, you know, that there there definitely seems to be a lot of evil and suffering that exists in the world um, without a clear purpose. Um, and animal suffering is definitely one of those examples. Um, I, I guess one one issue, one question that I'm I'm just interested in, Phil, um, since you, I mean you're you're the m more of an expert on this than anyone I've ever met. I guess I'm wondering, what what, what is the current um, scientific view on animal suffering, and, and how do the and how is this determined? How do how do scientists yeah, come yeah, to yeah. conclusions? Well, let about me let, let me give you uh, um, an example, right? So there is actually like eight criteria that scientists use to try and determine whether animals suffer or not. So for example, do they um, nurse their wounds? Do they respond to analgesics in a certain way? Will they give up resources to avoid pain? These sorts of things. So let me give you an example. Um, an experiment with fish was done by uh, Lynn Snedden. And um, what they did was they injected bee venom into, well, first, off, first off, they observed their what's called place preference. So they had a large uh, tank for the fish and they have one area of the tank which is enriched with objects that they, they might like to sort of move around in. And the other bit of the tank is sort of boring and dark. It doesn't have any enrichment activities for them. And what you observe is that they guess which part of the tank they like. They like the ones, you know, with things in it and not dark. Um, so then what you do is you, um, you observe that. Then you put bee venom into them. And then you see if their place preference changes. And it doesn't. They still like the, the sort of nice area, right? But then what you do is you um, you put analgesics in the area that they don't like, and then you see if they switch. And they do switch. They actually spend the time in the area where the analgesics is. So that's, I think, very strong evidence that fish feel pain. But then one of the counter arguments was, ah, but when we study through fMRI uh, where the brain lights up for pain, we find that there's this region called the anterior cingulate cortex that lights up um, and fish don't have that. So maybe that's where, what's doing the pain and therefore they don't have pain. So what we, dis, what we did in our paper 
was that we showed uh, evidence of a brain damaged patient who had these areas of the brain destroyed. And then um, my colleagues tested his pain perception. And what they found was he's actually what's called hyperpathic to pain. He's actually more sensitive to pain than normal. Um, and so, so you then have to explain, well, what is the, why was the ACC lighting up then? So another potential explanation is that maybe what's happening is it's trying to modulate the pain, trying to control it. So, so if you don't have that, it's probably going to be worse. Um, and indeed, this patient, patient R, oh, his pain is worse. Um, now, that's not necessarily the only explanation, but what it does show is that the argument that um, this region of the brain was necessary um, is false. But more, moreover, what I think is really important is that we can show that emotional states are driven by in subcortical regions of the brain. How do we show that? Well, you can stimulate them directly. This electrical, direct electrical stimulation, if you stimulate these subcortical regions of the brain, which are basic uh, evolutionary ancient regions of the brain, you get emotions. Like a, an animal will show you a fear response. A human will tell you they suddenly feel afraid. And then you might say, well, how do we know that the animal doesn't like it? Because that's the key point, right? You have some state and we want to know, does the animal like it or dislike it? Well, you can do that. And the way you do that is you give them control over the stimulation. And then what you find is for negative emotional states, they will switch that stimulation off. For positive ones, they'll keep pushing that button until they like drop dead without any food. I mean, you know, so, so that, that I think hopefully answers your question. That's the, the evidence. And I think the consensus is overwhelmingly that animals do feel pain. So can, can I, sorry, can I ask a follow-up? So, Billy, I'm sorry, I don't want to steal your thunder here. Uh, no, I, please, I go steal my thunder. I want to hear what you want to ask. Okay, go so, for yeah, it. so something that I guess I've, has always, I've always wondered about. Um, so from a, um, you know, from a physicist, from the perspective of a physicist, um, I mean, different physicists have different views, but probably if I were an atheist, I would believe in some something like the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is just, deterministic evolution of this wave function for all time. Um, and what that means is that things like um, like free will is an illusion, right? That ultimately my actions are just completely determined by laws of nature. Um, that everything I say, everything I think, all of this completely determined by laws of nature. Um, you know, just the, the, equa the physical state of all of it, you can tell what's going to happen. Uh, what that means is that when it comes to something like an animal's behavior or a person's behavior, right, um, that is explained completely by physical states. Um, and so my question is, how how is it possible to infer anything about mental states, right? Because you might say like, oh, well, the animal does this in response to this, this stimulus, right? This pain stimulus, the animal responds in this way. I, I guess my point is that if that can be completely explained by by just quantum mechanics, you know, evolve some wave function, you'd be able to determine that that is how the animal is going to respond. How, how can you then go back and infer that, oh, it must have done this because it was in pain? Well, there's no must about the matter. It's always a probabilistic statement. Um, so I think, well, first of all, I, I, I would just object that I, I have to subscribe to the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. There are, of course, many, many different interpretations of quantum mechanics. So I don't yeah. think you know. I, I don't know if a different one will help much. No, 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 that's fine. Yeah. That, that's yeah. fine. Uh, okay. So, um, but the point is, uh, we know that we can feel pain, right? We know that from introspection. Yeah. Right? So then we can ask the question, well, what might generate those pain states, right? Um, so if I drop something heavy on my toe and I scream and I, and I see someone do exactly the same, I just think it's a logical inference that the best, you know, of course, it could be 
that I am the only conscious being in the world, right? That's possible, right? Um, but if I have to sort of say, well, where do I want to bet, right? Maybe there's something that generates my consciousness. And the thing that generates my consciousness is the thing that generates your consciousness. And then we study the brain and we find that there are relationships between brain states and consciousness. So if you, if you send that electrical signal into a person, into their fear region of the brain, and they suddenly report they're being, they say they're afraid, right? Yeah. Then you, it's not unreasonable to think they probably are afraid, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, if you do the same for an animal and they show you a fear response, right? then uh, the, the, it just seems to me the most probable uh, explanation is that they have the same mental state. That just seems like the best explanation here. Yeah, of course, it's always possible that I'm the only conscious being, but it's not where I want to put my money. I, I just wanted to add something here because, Phil, one of the things you said in this argument, and then we're going to move on to one other here in a moment, but you know that this was a problem for Christianity because the suffering was happening before the fall, right? And if the argument is that the fall is what created suffering, yeah, then it's that is. So I wanted that. to come back to that. It's right. not it's just, not just that. But I wanted to come back to that. Five, it's not just that. When we had yes, these sort of five yeah. problems that the Christian has to answer. Exactly. The engine of our creation is so incredibly violent, right? Science tells us that is how we got here. So either you have to say, right, God wasn't involved. That's the atheist response. That's just did not part of the picture or you say well god chose those means but why would god choose such violent means like that just seems very um yeah strange answer well and i only pinpoint that one because i wanted to get tom's reaction to that piece because i do think that's a really interesting argument you know again sort of the christian worldview the idea that if suffer animal suffering was happening before the fall um tom how do you respond to that piece of the puzzle well, uh, first of all, can I can I, I just have one more question that I wanted to ask Phil then, um, which is I think related. But you know, it, you, you talk Phil about kind of going from this inference to like, well, if I respond in this way, then that's probably pain. So if I see an animal doing it, they're also probably in pain. I guess you know, since since we're thinking here from a Christian perspective, trying to find a contradiction with Christianity, what, what do you say that it's is it possible, or what what do you think about the possibility that perhaps that when in Christianity, you know, when God comes, when he puts his, the image of God on humanity, could that have something to do with consciousness? I mean, could, could consciousness be something that only emerges late, you know, much later in the uh, evolutionary process? So that, that that's where patient R comes in very, very interesting because some people had said consciousness is a late evolutionary process. And then you have to ask what's, what are the neuroanatomical, neuroanatomical features that might support that, and it's the neocortex. But patient R has most a lot of these regions just destroyed, right? But when you interview patient R, he's completely normal. I mean, he has very severe amnesia, but uh, you would not know there was anything wrong with him. So he appears to be completely conscious. So this speaks to the fact that consciousness um, is generated by more basic regions of the brain, and therefore it looks like it's evolutionary ancient. So it's always possible that all the science that we've got is deceiving us and God did do this. Yeah, okay, it's possible, right? But uh, what's the most plausible thing to say? Well, if these these cortical regions of the brain, which are late evolutionary developments, I mean, they're not that late. I mean, they're mammals. It's like still yeah. you know, hundreds of millions of years, right? But um, they, you know, it, it might not be 500 million years. So like, mammals have been around, oh, I don't know, maybe it's 90 million years. I don't know exactly how long mammals have been around, but it's, it's a long time, right? Right, yeah, it's a long time. Um, yeah. So... Um, so yeah, so so I think that's the reason to think that um, this is evolutionary ancient. 
Um, of course, you might say, well, the brain anatomy is just irrelevant. You know, it's all happening, you know, through supernatural processes or whatever. But I think that's where the evidence is pointing. You, you brought up at the end there kind of what I was thinking, right? I mean, isn't, is, does it kind of assume atheism to say that, uh, that you know, that, that consciousness is obviously something that can be reducible to certain brain functions, right? That, uh, I mean, I, I think to me, I think consciousness is not something that, as I've said, as I explained earlier, I'm not sure if consciousness is something that we can really touch too well physically. So I think it's something that we sort of need to, you know, we once we have consciousness, then we can try to, you know, uh, maybe assess that when, when pain is happening or something. But I think it's a difficult question to to talk about consciousness from a, from a purely physical, scientific, naturalistic perspective. I hate to pause us here. I know this is because we could do it. We could do a whole day on this because you guys are so great. I, I want to shift to you, Tom, uh, because you yeah, know we yeah. talked about a series of things. When I asked you for the most compelling evidence of God and evidence of, of the Christian God, one of the things you mentioned was the resurrection. But I don't want to presume or push you in one direction or another. We have about seven minutes here that we can kind of break down um, really what the most compelling pieces of evidence for you are when it comes to the Christian God. Yeah. Okay. Well, I did want to kind of um, uh, address the question that you answered, you asked before, and I think I can kind of do that here together. Um, so, you know, I could I could go the road of fine tuning. I don't think seven minutes is enough to talk about fine tuning. So, so let me talk <laughs> a little bit about the problem of evil and suffering, uh, which also seven minutes isn't enough to answer. But you know, uh, so I guess you know when, when it comes to questions like this uh, of animal suffering, of, of human suffering, you know, of, of all the pain and suffering and evil. Um, you know, some Christians would go to some sort of free will defense. Uh, and I think that's where the animal suffering really becomes an issue, right? Um, but I, I would say that, yeah, to me, the, the free will defense has never been completely compelling. Um, to me, I think when I look at, you know, the evidence for fine tuning, that suggests to me that there is some some sort of designer, creator, whatever you want to call it, that has a preference, that, that cares about us intelligent beings, uh, us humans. On the other hand, when I look at the problem of evil and suffering, I would say that that kind of cuts exactly against it, where it's like, well, okay, if God cares about us so much, um, then how come there's all this evil and suffering in the world? Um, and so, you know, for some people, I think, you know, that they either have to ignore one and go with the other, or ignore the one and go with, uh, you know, or, you know, you have to ignore one and go with the other. And um, I think to me, I, I, it's tough for me to do either. I, I think that both of them are trying to point us somewhere. Um, and so to me, I guess I start thinking about, you know, what, what would a solution to the problem of evil and suffering look like? And um, I, I think that really it, what matters most to me, you know, um, as I think about, about the problem of suffering is really just how the story ends. Um, because uh, ultimately, you know, as humans here living in this, in this whatever cosmic story, this cosmic drama that we find ourselves in, I, I think that, um, you know, that ultimately what really matters the most is, is how this ends. Like, is there some way that somehow the pain, the suffering could ultimately be part of something greater? That there could be some sort of some sort of purpose for this, even if I can't see what it is, and even if I can't tell how exactly that works, could there be a deeper purpose? Um, so, you know, what do we need? Because as it looks from, from a physical perspective, you know, it looks like we're all just going to die here. The human race will go extinct. The sun will swell up and swallow up the earth and just everything will be over. Um, so that doesn't, you know, that's not a very compelling end to this story. I think the only way that really it makes sense, the only way that there could be a God um, is if somehow that the story is going to end differently. And I think when you when you start looking at, at you know, how the stories that we tell, you know, what are the things, 
what, what does our story need is that we need some sort of hero to come in. Um, in all the great stories, there's a hero who remains uncorrupted, who sacrifices for the good of the many, and in the climactic moment, miraculously triumphs as evil defeats itself. Like this is the ending of a, every great story every told, ever told, every movie, every book, even like the sports movies um, essentially follow this. Uh, to me, that's where I think Jesus comes in. Um, Jesus, to me, looks like the hero that the human story deme- uh, demands and deserves, who goes to battle against the great human enemies of of sin and evil and death, and ultimately rises triumphantly. Um, so, to me, the Christian, you know, I think I have pr- I have trouble with sort of generic theism when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering. But for me, when I look at Jesus, I say, you know, if, if God really if God cares about us so much um, that he was willing to come into our world and, and suffer with us, um, and if God can somehow take that great injustice, the crucifixion of Jesus, and turn it into the greatest good the world has ever seen, which is the salvation of the world uh, and eternal life, then I feel like that gives me confidence that God can take whatever other pain and evil suffering that we have in this world and ter- somehow turn it into something good. And I can't, I don't know how that's going to work, right? Like I can't see, look at some in particular instance of suffering and say, oh, well, here I, I can clearly see how this is going to be redeemed. Um, the fact that God has done it before gives me confidence that he can do it again. Um, and I think it's kind of the point that we're not supposed to quite understand this yet, that somehow in the end, everything will make sense. Um, but for now, it doesn't. That, um, okay. So I'm going to ask you to do the impossible now, Phil. We have two minutes here. If you want to respond to that at all, all right, um, right. I'm going to let you do that before we round out. Okay. In two minutes, I'm going to do a shameless plug because if you want to uh, hear the uh, opposing view about fine tuning, we have interviews with leading physicists and philosophers giving their critique of the fine tuning argument. Uh, I, I, and there was a reply from its proponents, and we did a counter reply. So go on my channel, Skydive, Phil, if you want to see that. But okay, so now on to this quick issue of the, the we need a hero. Uh, I think there are lots of good stories that don't really have a hero. Um, it's a certain type of film, um, but uh, also um, they don't always have sacrifice. Like my one of my favorite movies, like like I can see like in these action movies and the dramas, you know, uh, yes, you 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 have that. But like Game of Thrones, is sure, right? Um, but Amelie is a French film. It's just about a girl that goes around doing nice uh, deeds so i don't know that we need this story and we don't want to live our lives through the stories that we want to see like game of thrones is one of my favorite shows and i would not want to live in that world but also we haven't seen the ending of the story so if you're depending on the end of the story that we haven't seen then uh, then that's a problem because i could just say that ending is fictitious right you're relying on uh, eternal life that we can't check whether that's real or not and even if there is eternal life it still doesn't seem to explain the suffering in this world because God could have granted us that eternal life without the suffering. So even if we grant all of that, I don't see how it can explain the suffering that exists in this world. It, it just doesn't explain it at all. Well, I want to thank you both. We dug into a lot today and we went a lot deeper on some of the elements that I that I thought we were going to. It was, it was really great having you both on. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. It's always to be on the show. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Billy. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Billy. 
Thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening and see you next week.